This program is brought to you by W. W. Norton and Company, publishers of Poetry Unbound by Patrick Otuma. Now in paperback and featuring immersive reflections on 50 powerful poems. Welcome to the guest editor Q&A hosted by the Academy of American Poets. I'm Mary Sutton, senior content editor at the Academy, and I'm here today with the guest editor for October, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. Marcelo is the author of Dulce and Senzontle. Marcelo, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mary. It's truly a pleasure and an honor to able to participate and curate this month's Poem Day series. Uh, I am a huge fan of the series and have been since its uh, start. And it's, it's truly surreal that I get to have this chance um, to curate. And it's an honor to have you. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this for us. So how did you approach curating Poem Day for October? So as I was approaching this question of how to how to how to curate, um, I was thinking about and interested in poets who wrote against the limitations of borders, nation states, documents, and citizenship. And that didn't necessarily mean that they wrote about those particular things, but that they wrote through them and they wrote from those intersections. And where that ultimately ended up could be a poem uh, about a father, about loneliness, about flowers. And I guess it was an expand and a process of expansion to expand what we would normally think of a, a of a poem that is somehow or another affected by borders, nation states, documents, citizenship. So some poets more closely aligned with those themes, but others took widely different expanses, widely different views, widely different um, images, approaches. And it was, it was a, an exercise in what do you make of this? What do you, how do you walk away from the intersections of citizenship, of nation states, of documents. And so Eduardo Corral talked about loneliness, um, you know, and we have Vanessa uh, uh, Angelica Villarreal with her poem, uh, Angelica Root. So I guess it was, it, was a, it was a good way of thinking, how can I expand what we would normally associate with these particular themes and just show that poets write through these themes in different varied ways. 
So you're you're interested in in hierarchies of power, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. your your and and that interest um, I think is is very timely uh, today uh, in light of um, both Queen Elizabeth's funeral today, um, which has shut down London and uh, the devastation brought by Hurricane Fiona in Puerto Rico yesterday, leaving millions without power almost exactly five years after Hurricane Maria struck a disaster from which the island is not fully recovered. Um, interestingly, I, I don't know if you've observed this, you probably have, um, in numerous major American newspapers today, uh, news of the Queen's funeral is, is the top <laughs> story. Uh, while the devastation in Puerto Rico is secondary, if it's covered at all. Um, all of this is very recent, of course, but, but how much were you influenced um, by current events and news of the world while putting this curation together? I mean, I don't think you can step away or look away from a lot of the injustices that that are happening as we are writing poems, as we are reading poems, to think of these poems uh, in a vacuum, existing in a vacuum without the context of their genesis, without the context of the history, not, not just the history in which they talk about. Um, again, sometimes more overtly, sometimes more, more um, subverted, but it's a great luxury to be able to read poems in a vacuum, to not have to consider, you know, um, the history of the monarchy in, in England and how that has um, touched the lives of in, 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 in how, how that has affected, you know, millions, if not billions of people. Um, so all of these poems are written in a place and in a time. And even with my students, I ask what is happening outside of the world of the poem. And that's why I think the publication date is really important. When I was looking back through, you know, the, the curation of the series in general, I was noticing, I was really interested in the poems that were written, I guess not written, but submitted for publication in the, when they appeared in the series right before the lockdowns of COVID. Um, and how hindsight is in 2020, the, the demarcation of those publication dates, I think were really important to me and what was happening in the poems that were published when the protests around the murder of George Floyd um, was happening, both as a response at times, but also in their existence being a response that, you know, maybe the poet didn't intend, but because of their placement in that time, in that place, in that context, are nonetheless read through that. So if you could direct readers to one poem in our collection at poets.org that you haven't curated, what would it be and why? Yeah, there was, I mean, there's so many, there's so many poems that I, that I truly admired and you know so many people who I wanted to um, tap to to contribute um, they they had already appeared before but I'm always I think there are different reasons uh, a poem stay with me 
some are, I guess, meaningful simply because of the information that they have. They teach me something new. They teach me about fungi. They teach me about borders. They teach me about climate. Um, or they offer a new way to see something that I, that I already knew, but that I hadn't thought of before. Um, these, these ideas that exist in the common vocabulary or in the cultural consciousness, but are allowing me to see it in any way. This is kind of one thing that I remember. I forget where he said it, but Yusuf Komunyaka said, uh, something about cliches and that a good poet knows how to turn a cliche so that it feels new. Um, you know, others because they make me feel something I hadn't felt before. That's why some poems uh, stay with me. They introduce me to not necessarily a new feeling, but allow me to associate a feeling with a new subject matter and that association and hadn't made before. Um, you know, and others yet and others still, they validate or confirm something I had already felt, but perhaps hadn't admitted to myself um, a quiet kind of feeling that existed deep in my consciousness and it was brought forth. So I already knew it, but it, it was um, highlighted by that poem. And uh, one of those poets is Richard Seidkin. Um I was in grad school when I first read a Crush, and I don't think that I'll ever experience a book of poems the way I did when I first read Seikin's Crush, you know, for the very first poem of Shaharazad um, to the last poem, Your Name is Jeff, or the, the last of the poem uh, towards the end of My Name is Jeff. Um, every time I read a Seikin poem, all of those things I listed above um, are being done at the same time. I'm learning something new. I'm being taught to feel in a different way. I'm confirmed something that I've already felt. And so I, when I saw Richard Seiken had um, also contributed to the series Real Estate, that was kind of no, no difference in, in, in how I experienced every Richard Seiken poem, where he says, there will be no confusion, the dead will make room for me. I met him once and I was truly, truly at a loss for words. And the prose poems that he's published after Crush, some of which have appeared in his second book, War of the Foxes, um, and then this poem here in Poem A Day, Real Estate, re really remind me of what's possible, how complicated even simple things can be, and how we take common knowledge for granted. And when I met him, he said, you know, I, ha I, have a I, I can imagine a deer in my head, but I can't produce one when I have to draw one. And he says, does that mean that I really don't know what a deer is? Um, and, you know, I, I hope he's better. Um, he had some health problems. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm forever, I'll forever keep any of his poems dear with me. First, I'm so glad that you make that comment. Um, or uh, reiterated that comment from Komunyaka about cliches, because often cliches are regarded as taboo in poetry. Yeah. Um, one wonderful poet who, who comes to mind in being able to turn cliches on their head uh, is Kay Ryan, um, mm. his work I'm, I'm sure you're, you're also familiar with. Um, and for those who don't know, um, Richard Sykin's Crush was the 2004 winner of the Yale Younger Poets Prize, judged by Nobel Prize laureate and former Academy Chancellor Louise Gluck. Uh, Seiken has also published uh, in Poem a Day, as Marcella mentioned, 
uh, in December 2020, August 2014, and February 2013. Uh, real estate was curated uh, during December 2020 by Brian Wanchfield, uh, our guest editor for that month. Um, eroticism is a common theme in Sykin's work, and you've also explored the erotic uh, in your own work. Are there other uh, poets or poems uh, who write in this vein who interest you? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely poets who, who I've long admired. Um, Sharon Olds um, writing in this um, erotic, sensual mode. And um, I, I mentioned him just previously, um, Eduardo C. Corral. But there's also other poets who approach the sensual approach, the erotic in um, maybe different ways. Um, Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem, uh, winner of the uh, Pulitzer Prize two years ago, is one of these books that, that long in a way that is continuously interesting, but also familiar is continuously strange and familiar at the same time. That I know these feelings of longing that she has, but that she says it in such a way that it still feels new. And that's one of the reasons I'll return to a lot of her poems um, over and over again, because it reminds me of what is familiar, but I experience it almost as if I'm experiencing it for the first time. And so, you know, uh, when my brother was an Aztec, Natalie is his first book, Richard Saikin, um, Eduardo Corral. The, these books taught me how to, how to love. Um, I guess love is instinctual and we, we kind of know it, but it's difficult sometimes to put it into words. Um, and I guess my, my, new, my new work uh, has that, but it it is more attached to to the present day as i was mentioning like they don't exist so much in a vacuum when i was writing my first book of poems it was i was in a very different space i was still undocumented and i felt like i couldn't say a lot about myself so um the poems really had to maneuver visibility and invisibility what i could say what i couldn't say both in terms of my queer identity and also my documentation status. Um, this is a book in which I came out with, um, you know, to my partner. Uh, and it's strange that that happens through a book. Strange and wonderful, if, if I might uh, add that in. Um, who or what are you reading right now? I, I just met Daniel Borzutsky for the first time that we've known each other for, for a bit. We just, we had just been friends on social media and kind of running in the same circles. So I knew I, I had read Lake Michigan and, um, I spent some time in Chicago recently, um, and had a participating in a reading series that he curates. Um, and we got to talking about his last book uh, titled Written After a Massacre in the year 
2018, published by Coffeehouse Press. And I was surprised, almost even a little embarrassed with how many intersections uh, his book has with some of my new, some of the work that I'm dealing with too. And I think it's also to the previous point that a lot of the poems that that, uh, that poets respond to their times. And Daniel Borzutsky's, this, this latest book, is very much responding to the violence um, of the nation state, the violence um, of carceral um, punishment, and even the new kinds of violences that are arising because of increased methods of AI technology, of surveillance, and what he notes of as predictive analytics in which AI is deciding how much of a threat somebody could be. And through that, you know, setting um, limits of parole, um, uh, tracking and, and so on and so forth. So this data-driven, uh, this data-driven kind of style is something that I was really, really interested in and was also looking at. Um, and it was really a pleasant surprise to see, you know, him wrestle with a lot of the same questions of how do we talk about unspeakable cruelty? How do we write after unspeakable cruelty uh, like the, um, the, um, the massacre that happened um, in Pittsburgh? Um, at a synagogue, which was his hometown. And I'm asking myself that same question. How can I, how can I write after, after what was witnessed um, in 2018 by the 45th administration separating children and um, many of whom have never been, never been returned. That really messed me up that really messed me up and I'm trying to find my way back to writing um, after hearing some of those audio recordings. For those who are interested, uh, the eponymous poem from that Borzutsky book is available on poets.org, both in textual form and as an audio file. Uh, it was also featured uh, in Poem a Day in October, 2020 which was guest edited by Ari Banias. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Borzutsky's poem deals explicitly with the border conflicts, um, the dehumanization of immigrants of color and the United States' almost collective refusal to grapple with immigration and displacement as, as moral issues instead of um, political ones. And of course you have written extensively about your own experience as an undocumented person growing up in California and your memoir, uh, Children of the Land, uh, particularly um, being confronted by an ICE agent in your own home, uh, as well as, uh, you know, trying to perfect your English while growing up. So, you know, in, in this effort to, to blend in better, you mentioned. Um, and there was this tension, it seems, uh, in your early life between visibility and hypervisibility, which you mentioned just a little bit earlier in this interview. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that theme. How much has that theme of visibility versus hypervisibility 
uh, influenced um, this curation and how much does it influence your work going forward? I think that is personally for me that has changed a lot. Um, and I think particularly since the 2016 election, because after that election, I felt like I didn't have the luxury to be misunderstood. I didn't have the luxury to uh, be misread or, um, you know, a, a lot of things that I took for granted. Um, you had offices like the Office of Denaturalization that were mining for possible mistakes that were done 20, 30 years ago when people being stripped of their immigration, of their naturalization. Um, and I guess my personal reaction to, to just this, 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 this very particular kind of violence that was done to immigrant communities was being more plain spoken, being more direct and equating you know decreasing the distance between of the metaphor between a and b that a could no longer resemble approximate b but that a had to be b um and you know with with my memoir i couldn't i guess hide behind um behind metaphor in a way that I did in my first book of poems um, of, of abstractions or lyrical language. Um, being nonfiction, I had to write plainly. I had to write directly. And it was very difficult, a new mode that I had never really written in. And I wrote the memoir because there were things that I just needed to say, but I couldn't say on, in, in poems still. So I knew that I needed to say the things that I need to say and talk about my life in a way that I had never done before, both in conversation or in my writing. Um, so I had to turn to a memoir. I had to turn to essay and let the memoir form dictate how I wrote. And I guess that leap has now led me to, um, you know, being putting myself on the page, um, my body, um, you know, uh, and the people around me. So it's been a, it's been a journey in learning how to talk about myself. And, you know, I learned from, from poets like Daniel Brzezinski. Um, and that doesn't mean that my poems didn't talk about borders or immigration. It's just that I had my own way of talking about them. And, you know, it's not a, a better way. There isn't a better way. It's that, you know, I, I was able to talk about what I needed to talk about at that time. And that's kind of my curation is that there isn't one way to talk about immigration. There isn't one way to talk about borders. Um, and to to showcase the so many so many different approaches to these to these to these ideas really i wanted to to challenge people's um assumptions of what are the ways in which we talk about borders um 
you working on now in your writing, teaching, and publishing life? It's been really difficult to write in the pandemic. At the beginning, I felt like we all thought, you know, things were going to stop and we were going to have a lot of time to write, to work. We were all in lockdown. Um, things were switching over to, to Zoom, uh, to virtual learning. Uh, and it was a steep learning curve to, uh, for teaching, but also for, for writing, how to write in my house something that was that is very it might be familiar to a lot of people where they nestle in into their into their homes into their environment and can write there but i think because of my history with immigration my history with um the uh the ice grade that happened early on i've always been very uncomfortable being in my house for long periods of time i'm learning to undo that and um the new work that i that i have has has really has been an exercise in 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 patience um it started with a collaboration with the university of arizona's art for justice program through the arizona poetry center um, and they have two fellows each year for the last i believe five years uh, who are tasked with uh, writing about mass incarceration in how they see um, fit and how what their approaches are. So you had uh, poets like Patricia Smith uh, conducting interviews. You had poets like Nicole Seeley um, producing erasures from uh, uh, police reports. And for me, I came at this at the tail end of, okay, what is a way that I can approach um, the effects of mass incarceration um on my communities and for me it was you know i've been directly affected by this both in the immigration system and the penal system um but what i was tasked with was thinking about uh, mass incarceration and providing stories and so thinking about what can i contribute to this conversation not necessarily that wasn't done before but how can i use my unique intersections to provide uh, certain kinds of stories in order to back up what immigration advocacy groups are doing with um, with uh, quantitative data. So how did I, how can I provide qualitative experiences to supplement the quantitative data? And in researching this, you know, I was looking at congressional records, I was looking at um, uh, memos by groups like the GEO group, public memos that have been um, released. And, you know, things as, uh, uh, this is kind of where um, me and, and Daniel Brzezinski's work uh, um, intersected in, in the fact that, what did I do with the data that I was presented, with the facts that I was presented, and how do I turn that into art? How do I put that into a poem without seeming gratuitous or, you know, um, without erasing parts of, of that story? For example, uh, the corrections company, the private for profit corrections company that deals with immigration detention centers, but also private uh, run prisons, uh, GEO group, uh, 
uh, is now publicly listed as a real estate investment trust. And they have rewritten into the congressional record what the definition of um, the, def the corporate definition of land and ownership. So per the congressional record, what is defined as land and what is defined as ownership has been lobbied. And that that statement in itself, I felt was important that there was a story behind the data. And so the new work that I'm doing, I guess, breaks up into a triptych. It's the data, the fact, the predictive analytics, as, as Brzezinski puts it, um, the rationale for our engagement with it, like ideas of beauty, circumstance, um, wounds um, being legible. And this is from Ruth Behar's uh, author saturated text versus author evacuated texts, um, methods that reduce anxiety. Um, and looking at at, at these numbers, at these facts, not as an inconvenience, an ethnography, um, a testimony, so on and so forth. Um, you know, and not repeating the suffering in order to preserve the suffering. Um, so this new work, I guess, breaks up into that triptych of the facts from the world, the data, um, the rationale with our engagement with it, and then um, a creative rendition. And at the moment, I can't really reconcile all three into one in a way that many other poets do and, and whom I admire greatly. Um, it's a stepping stone that I think I'm, I'm approaching uh, cautiously because I haven't done it in poetry yet. I deal with facts and I deal with, um, you know, more direct um, uh, points that are in time, in space, in place, in my memoir. But this is the first time that I'm doing it in poetry. And, you know, how, what do we do with, with quantitative data? Uh, because we somehow tend to attribute the greatest value to quantitative data as a way of getting something done. Um, in rhetorical arguments, you know, um, uh, in defense even of, of someone's humanity, that quantitative data is what gets the job done. But as poets, you know, it's the stories that you can't really quantify that um, that really is, is, our, is our medium. Um, so I'm trying to reconcile the three kind of, the three modes, um, the lyrical creative rendition of what it is that I gather from these. And for example, that there needs to be, or that there is a 34,000 immigrant detention bed mandate expected to be filled at all times. Um, so yeah, this is this is uh, this is kind of the new work that I'm that I'm building towards, and uh, it's been about a year and a half, two years in the making, and you know I'm 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 okay with with taking another two years on it. I'm okay with thinking through these things and not rushing towards publication. I think in the, in the way that I did for my first book, um, and I don't know it's um, hopefully one day I could do a a book length piece. Um, a book length poem and and this be a book length poem that's a dream I I, I, um, I greatly admire poets who are able to think in that large that large term but maybe having written a memoir you know that is that is very very long now I can I can start thinking of the of that broader scope
We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for this very rich conversation. Thank you, Mary. It's, it's an honor. Day is the original daily poetry series featuring new poems by today's poets. Produced by the Academy of American Poets, this free digital series is made possible by you, our readers and listeners. Learn more about Poma Day, and if you can, please consider supporting this work by visiting poets.org/give.